that's just our subtle way of getting your attention, I guess, right? Um, anyway, thank you for coming. Thanks for being here. We appreciate it. Um, I, I was trying to look for various ways to add phrases like rise up to my sermon today, and I, I couldn't find any. So I thought I'd just add it now. In case you don't know what that is, that's the Falcon slogan. Um, my team is the Steelers. They did not make it, so I'm rooting for the closest thing. So anyway, um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 18 all the way through 32 this morning. And we have started our series on the book of Romans, and we are going through and seeing really the need for our righteousness to be received outside of us. We have a need for a righteousness that is not ours because we are not righteous. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And we need a a righteousness outside of us, a righteousness that's not received by works, as we heard last week, but a righteousness that's received by faith, by faith in God who gives us righteousness. So let's read Romans 1, chapter, I mean, verse 18 to 32. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, to encourage you to look on with somebody beside you, um, we don't have the verses on the overhead this morning, so please look in your Bibles or look with someone beside you and follow along. This is God's holy inspired word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness and malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's holy inspired word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that helps us understand who we are, that helps us understand the core motivations of our hearts, Lord, that helps us understand what life would look like apart from you, that helps us understand the world around us and how the world is in such an awful state because the world has rejected you, suppressing the truth, not acknowledging you. And God, you've, because of that, given the world over to your wrath, Lord, which is giving people over to their own desires. God, I pray that the result of this morning would be twofold, Lord, that we would, we would be in awe of the fact that you have chosen us by your grace, that we have been found righteous by faith, that, God, we'd be grateful that we are no longer objects of wrath, and then, God, as well, I pray we'd be motivated to to share your good news. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, the idea of God's wrath, it's offensive to a lot of people, isn't it? If you go up to somebody on the street and you tell them that, that God is a God who's full of wrath against sin, I'm guessing they might avoid you. I'm try it this week. See what happens. But it's because I love my children that actually I would get angry if someone would attack them. So the ideas of, of love and wrath are not contrary in God. God, because God's a loving God, he is wrathful against that which harms his creatures the most, which is sin, idolatry, going after the things that will lead them to death. If I truly love my children and someone comes up and tries to hurt them, I, I would have a godly, I hope, wrath against them and try to stop that. If I love my wife and I saw somebody else trying to hurt her, there's a kind of wrath, a settled opposition to her being hurt that I think we all would understand that's right and good precisely because I love her. And so when you look at wrath, especially in Romans, especially in this context, this is not God flying off the handle and getting angry. This is his settled disposition, his anger towards sin because he loves his creation. And it's against God's created order. Tim Keller, he, he wrote a book called, um, I think it was called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And he quotes a woman named Becky Pippert, and she wrote, Think how we feel, I think we have this for you on the overheads actually, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it's his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. 
So when we begin to look at this passage, we're going to see that Paul, he talked about, if you look down your Bibles in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he talks about how the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Now, in this verse, he's actually talking about how the wrath of God is revealed in the gospel. And you think, well, wait a minute, why is he doing that? Why is he talking about the wrath of God being revealed in the gospel? Well, what we're going to see here is that the wrath of God It's revealed against the sins of mankind for good reason. And what Paul is doing here is he's explaining why the need for the gospel. And without the wrath of God, there's no need for the good news that saves us from the wrath of God. And so in verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, it says that the righteousness from God has been revealed. A righteousness that's by faith, that's received by faith. And now he's saying that this righteousness revealed in the gospel, he says now there's a Wrath revealed through the gospel. And then he explains really three main ideas that we're going to see here in this passage. The first thing we're going to see is that why God's wrath is revealed. And we're going to see this because people are suppressors of the truth. People are suppressors of the truth. Everyone you walk up to on the street who does not know God in some way is suppressing the truth about God. So Paul's going to explain what that means in verses 18 to 20. And then we're going to see that why his wrath is revealed again. Paul continues to explain why man is without excuse. And why, why the whole argument of fairness doesn't apply. And he explains that wrath is revealed because people are idolaters. Because instead of worshiping God, they worship themselves and creatures instead of the creator. We'll see that in verses 21 to 23. And then finally we're going to see how God's wrath is revealed. We know that on the final judgment day, God's wrath will be fully revealed, but right now we're going to see how God's wrath is revealed is that God gives people over to their own idolatry. That's the wrath of God. The very beginning of the passage, as I mentioned earlier, it begins with a for or because. When it says, for the wrath of God is revealed, it's pointing back to a few things. It's pointing back to verse 15 where, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. Why is he not ashamed? Because the wrath of God is also revealed in the gospel. And then he says that the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Why? Why is he willing? Why does he desire us of preaching the, the power of God for salvation? Why? Because the wrath of God is revealed in the gospel. If you don't understand, if you don't grasp, if you don't see the wrath of God, you will never get our need for the good news, nor will you be compelled to share the good news, nor will you be grateful for the good news yourself. And so it's looking back to those verses, it's Paul's theological defense explaining why the gospel is necessary in the first place. This is why Paul's not ashamed to proclaim the good news. Because people, by nature, suppress the truth, and they need the truth of God's word. Because people are idolaters, and they need the good news that frees them from idolatry. Because people are under the wrath of God, and they need the good news that will deliver them from the wrath of God, by which they can receive God's righteousness by faith. And so you see here, it is a big deal. It's a big deal that man needs salvation, because man is by nature, under the wrath of God. And since we need salvation, 
You have to see, okay, why has God revealed his righteousness and why is it only by faith that we receive the righteousness of God? And Paul's going to explain that as well. He says, we have a righteousness that comes by faith. Well, why is that? Why can't we get that righteousness some other way? Well, Paul explains the fact is that we can't get righteousness on our own because by ourselves we are inclined to suppress the truth and go further and further away from God. And that's what we see is this downward spiral. And then we see Verses 18 to 20, really our first idea we're going to unpack is why God's wrath is revealed. It's because people suppress the truth. You know, fake news is in the headlines a lot lately, right? I'm actually tired of hearing about fake news because it's coming from all sides, right? No matter what political party you are a subscriber to, no matter who you follow, no matter who you like, whether that's the president or opposition or whatever, um, everybody's yelling about fake news, fake news, and they're using excuses to prop up their ideology. And, and really, what it is, is both parties, all parties, are accusing the other side of, of propagating a false narrative, distortion of the facts. Sometimes what's done is this partial telling of the truth. Have you ever, you ever done that yourself, maybe? Or you ever heard a partial truth? You leave out details conveniently. When I was a kid, I did this a lot. I feel tempted to. We're all tempted to do that, especially if the truth makes us look bad. It's more convenient to leave out the parts of the truth that, that don't fit our agenda. You know, every political party is doing that right now, and they're feigning innocence and acting like it's only the other ones who suppress the truth and manipulate our lives. It's just them! But you know what? It's not only politicians who suppress the truth, Paul tells us. He says, each and every one Every man, every woman, all of mankind suppresses the truth about God, ultimately. And we suppress the truth because, you know what? It's inconvenient to embrace the truth that God requires worship of us, that he demands worship of us, that that the mere fact that he's our creator demands that we worship him, that's inconvenient for us. It makes us uncomfortable to, to acknowledge that we are deserving of God's wrath as humans, and so by nature we suppress the truth. We deny the reality of who God is and the claim that he makes on our lives. At some point in time, I think everybody here has been tempted to suppress the truth. If you're honest with yourself... I remember justifying my own sin of underage drinking as a kid. I convinced myself it wasn't really wrong. It was just that the law um, was trying to keep you from drinking and driving. So as long as I wasn't doing that, as long as I'm not hurting somebody else, then it's really okay. And so I justified this immoral behavior of breaking the law by the fact that I wasn't really hurting anybody else. I was redefining truth on my own terms. And so I said, well, I'm not going to do anything bad. I'm not going to hurt people. And although I knew it was wrong, I I suppressed the truth and I pursued truth my own desires. You know, we can do that in other ways. We can suppress the truth by acting like God doesn't really care what we do. We can suppress the truth by acting like God doesn't really see what we do. We can suppress the truth by acting like it's more important what other people think of us than what God thinks of us. That's, those are all common ways that mankind suppresses the truth. And so I hope you see that Paul's not just condemning Gentiles here. He's actually saying that all of us, by nature, suppress the truth in some way. Remember so many times I told what I like to refer to back then as a half-truth because I, I convinced myself that half-truths aren't lying. I was just withholding the truth. I was suppressing the truth. I was keeping it down. 
can you use here as an illustration of it? It's like a little boy who sneaks a puppy, an outdoor dog, from outside. He sneaks it into his room when he's not allowed to do that, and he keeps it there. And then all of a sudden, his parents knock on the door, and so he takes the puppy, and he hides it in his toy box, and he sits on it. And his parents talk to him, and he's acting the whole time like the puppy's not really there, even though it's knocking against the, the toy box. He's suppressing reality, suppressing the truth, and we, all of us are tempted and so Paul says the first place that God's wrath is revealed, it's, it's revealed because why? Because people suppress the truth that they have about who God is. Now it's not saying that they have all truth about God. It's not saying that you can come to a sense of salvation, that you can be saved by God through seeing creation around you. But he's saying you have enough to know that God exists, that he is powerful, that he is eternally, has eternal power and he's divine in nature, that God is God. You can know those things, but by mere fact that man suppresses the truth, he denies even the basic things he can know by nature. So all of man is without excuse. God's wrath is perfectly opposed to man's first sin of suppressing the truth. And there's going to be a day when all of God's wrath on sin is poured out, but the first way that you see his wrath being revealed is, is in judgment. And God turns people over to their own sin. The very reason that God's wrath is being revealed is that mankind actively suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness, it says. Not just denying, but refusing to believe the truth. And you encounter that all around you when, when people claim that God does not exist. But he's telling us here that in the heart of every man is this inherent understanding that there is someone outside of us and that someone is divine and more powerful than us. And just looking at all of nature around us can get us to at least those two truths that God is divine. There's a God and he is divine and that he is eternal in power. He says what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. It's plain you know, David, he wrote some, something similar in Psalm 19. He says in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, and I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. I don't normally quote from that, but it, it worded it very well this time. He says, For the choir director, a Psalm of David, the heavens tell of the glory of God. The skies display his marvelous craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is silent in the skies. Yet their message has gone out to all the earth and their words to all the world. The sun lives in the heavens where God has placed it. All the heavens tell of the glory of God. They speak without words of God's greatness Without words, their voice is silent, yet their message goes out to all the earth, their words to all the world. What David is saying is what Paul's reiterating is that when you go to the Grand Canyon and you stand on that precipice, um, you can't help but feel small and know that there is a God who is great, who has made these things. You know that there's God and he's divine and he's powerful. You look up the stars, you see the wonder, the majesty, the sun, the moon, the planets. The natural response is not to think, I made those things. The natural response is to, to be amazed and in awe. You naturally have a sense that something bigger than us is out there. There's eternal power seen in the things that have been made. 
If you were to stop and think then about the ecosystems of the world, the various um, symbiotic relationships, the mutualism that exists, you would naturally know there must be a divine God who created such order. These things cannot come about randomly. If you look at the amazing complexity of creation and an intricate order in everything, you see that it's evident there's a designer behind all of creation. Now, that's not enough to bring you to salvation, but it is enough to convict you of rejection of God. He's saying that all of humanity has got this intuitive awareness of God as well as an evidential and presuppositional awareness of God. And the argument he's making these verses is pretty straightforward. I think I have it for you in the overheads as well. It's... It's really a threefold argument. Since the creation of the world, God's attributes in his nature have been seen. God's nature is understood through creation. It's the second thing Paul's getting at. And then there's no excuse for why humanity is failing to honor God as God. There's no excuse. It throws the argument out the window that says, well, what about the people in some southern remote area of South America or remote area of Africa? What about those types of people? Paul says that, that everyone has at least an understanding that there is a God and he's divine and he's eternal. And it's the very rejection of that that God gives them over to his wrath. And he said, so what can be made, what can be known as plain? And says, so they're without excuse. And so looking in verse 21 to 23, we're going to see the next reason why God's wrath is revealed. Why does mankind deserve God's wrath? Why is the gospel a revelation of the wrath of God? Well, it's because man suppresses the truth. And then it's because people are idolaters. Because men don't honor God or give him thanks. Because men and women have been shown the manifest truth of God. They have no excuse for the suppression of truth. Imagine if you're from another country and you are driving here and you get pulled over because you have broken the speed limit and the cop explains that to you. You say, I'm really sorry. And he says, hey, you know what? You can show up at court. So you show up at court and you argue your ticket before the judge and you say, you know what? I didn't understand the speed limit wasn't a suggestion in my country. I'm from Germany. And you know, that's like a, that's that's a lower level on the, on the Audubon, and so I'm not used to that. And maybe the judge might say, well, you know what? It's your first week here or whatever, so I, I get it. Uh, I'm going I'm to cut you some slack. Um, you know, I, I understand that, but you really should have already understood the laws here because you are living in this country, so you're accountable anyway. But I'm going to cut you some slack. But then imagine that, you know, a month later you're back in court again because you've gotten three more speeding tickets. You know, the judge is not going to show you leeway. He's not going to understand because you're without excuse. You know. You know. And that's the idea that, that Paul is getting at here. He says, although they knew God. That, that whole thing of no one has, you know, that people don't know or they have an excuse or they haven't heard. And he says, no, although they knew God, they're guilty. Why? He says, because they didn't honor him as God and give thanks to him. They didn't honor God and they didn't give thanks to him. What's he talking about there, honoring God and giving thanks? Ultimately, that is worship. What's the right response of all mankind to seeing the revelation of God as divine and all-powerful? It's worship of God. Honoring him as God and giving thanks to him. Realizing that all things don't come from us. Even at the simplest level. And because of that, not because they'd never heard, he says, but because they didn't honor God, they didn't give thanks to him. Because of that, they became futile in their thinking. 
Because they intentionally did not honor, they actively did not give thanks to God, they became futile. And the downward progression is that their foolish hearts were darkened. Their very motivation was was corrupted and darkened and blinded. Their, Their thinking became futile, so they couldn't even now see the truth because they suppressed the truth and didn't worship God, they were idolaters. Not giving thanks to God, not honoring God, it reveals that we imagine that we're self sufficient. It's a big deal. It's, it's saying that, you know, there is no God. We can do this on our own, thanks very much. We don't honor God and give Him thanks. We're refusing to submit to God, refusing to give Him the worship that He deserves. And when mankind, he's saying here, when mankind acts like God doesn't exist, suppresses the truth, it leads to becoming futile in thinking. It leads to this downward spiral, and then our very motives, our hearts become dark, blind. So we can no longer recognize the truth. And don't you know, you see that in the world all around, that the, the thinking becomes so futile that they're in, they can't even see God anymore. Their motivation is no longer enlightened by the truth of who God is and a desire to worship Him. And this downward spiral results in becoming darkened and blind, foolish in our thinking. Selfish motivations drive us. We explain away all manner of sins. And by the way, who here hasn't done that? Who here hasn't explained away the way you talked unkindly to somebody because they deserved it? That's futile thinking. It's foolish hearts to being darkened, not seeing your own motives. Who here hasn't made an excuse for why you behave sinfully or why you reacted in such and such a way and blamed someone else? And so as you're reading these verses, you can't escape it. This is not just about those Gentiles, those people who act like this. Paul is really getting at something here. He's actually going to reach that conclusion in the next chapter when he says, so man, you are without excuse. Because the Jews here, they were saying that it's just those Gentiles, they're awful. And so Paul says, yes, these Gentiles are really horrible. Here's what they do. Here's what it looks like. But then he says, so you're without excuse too because you knew better and you still did these things. All of us are without excuse. If we continue to follow after rejection of God and unbelief, that's how false religions come about. Man is, is looking for ways to understand the world in a, in a futile way, a futile way of understanding and thinking. And, and, and apart from God, it leads to futility and darkness. You know, if you turn to denying that God even exists and they reject believing him altogether, some angrily rail against the very concept of God and others, they claim that he exists, but he's unknowable. I'm, a, I'm an agnostic. He's unknowable. I don't, I don't have faith or disbelief, but really there is no such thing. By having neither faith or disbelief, you are actively disbelieving. You're suppressing the truth, denying who God is. You can't be neutral. Others turn to the gods of their own making, it all begins not honoring God, not giving Him thanks, and leads to this futility in darkened hearts. Now look down at verses 22 and 23, if you will, in your Bibles, please. Paul goes on to describe this process of descent into sin and how that works. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. You know, I, I was reading someone recently who claims to be an atheist, and they were um, coming up with all of these different systems for explaining how the world came about. And, and you, you got down to the end of it, and the end of their explanation was, well, you know, the Big Bang started this way, and this way, this way, this way. And then you say, well, wh- where did the original substance come from? And then the answer was, well, from aliens. 
This is an extremely well-known physicist, probably one of the most popular physicists in the world today. And ultimately, he, he just couldn't explain it, and so he, he had to come up with something that's really absurd. It's because claiming to be wise, you become a fool. Claim to be wise in your own eyes to understand the world apart from God, you become a fool. And it says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. There's this downward progression for images resembling mortal man. So we, we, we exchange the immortal God for mortal man made in the image of God. That's bad, but not awful yet. Not as awful as it can be. Then, then birds, and then animals, and then reptiles. And how low could you get to exchange the glory of the immortal God who is to be worshipped as God over all? And Paul worships in the middle of this and says, Amen. And you exchange that for the lowest creature. You know, it would be like seeing the statue of Michelangelo, the statue of David, and going to the statue and saying, oh, what a beautiful, wonderful statue. What a great, pristine example of man and, and how, how wonderful that is and how beautiful that is. And then it would be like you, you took a couple steps back and you started bowing down the statue. You started worshiping the statue you start saying, oh, great statue, you're solid, you're mighty. You know, seeing the great works of art is meant to point our attention to the fact that there's an artist, there's a creator. He said you exchange the, the glory of the creator for the created thing. You know, looking at Michelangelo's statue, it's meant to us to make us wonder at the gifts and the talents of the artist and to appreciate his, his talent and skill. But if you denied that Michelangelo created David to begin with, you would have some really foolish thinking. And then you would descend into futility and in trying to come up with ways that this statue came about. So maybe you would say, well, well, there was some dust that got blown together in a storm. This dust got blown into the creek and it kind of formed into this mass and it created the cement. And then the storm came along that was really strong and the cement went up on the shore and where this guy had lain down on the side of the shore there was an impression and the cement landed there and then pop, out pops a statue. I mean, that would be ridiculous. It would be futile in thinking and God's saying, you've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Become futile in your thinking, claiming to be wise. What he's showing here is that idolatry, turning to idolatry is futile. It's foolishness. It's low. It's debasing. When men reject God, they claim to have wisdom and superiority. The irony is, in claiming to be superior and wise, you become fools. In claiming to be enlightened... You know, people say, we don't need Christianity, we don't, we don't need religion because that's not true knowledge. True knowledge is only science and only what I can see, and so I'm, I'm enlightened. And Paul says, no, you claim to be enlightened, you've been darkened. And the result of this downward spiral of sin, it comes from denying God's truth. And then, it, then we see that God judges, he pours out his wrath. His wrath is revealed. So, so Paul, at the beginning, he says that for the wrath of God is revealed. Why is it revealed? It's revealed because we suppress the truth, we deny the truth, we don't worship God, we turn to idolatry. And then how it's revealed, he tells us, a, a third idea here that we see is that 
His wrath is revealed in, in God giving people over to their idolatry. There will be a final day of judgment when his wrath is fully turned, poured out. But in the meanwhile, the worst thing, the worst thing for us is that God will give us what kills us. Imagine the illustration I shared earlier if someone was coming at my children and I claimed to love them, but I sidestepped and let the person have them and kill them. That would be that would be wrong for one. But that'd be the worst thing, allowing the worst thing to happen. And so we see that the wrath that we see is that not that God immediately kills us, but that He allows us to to be given over to our own sinful desires that, that because we reject him, because we suppress him, because we follow after idolatry, God actually says, if that is what you will willfully pursue instead of me, he gives us over, he consigns us. Because people choose to reject worshiping God and he gives them up to be slaves to their sin. Imagine if I, was, if I lived on some back road that no cars drove down because at the end of this road there was a massive canyon. And, and I saw this car coming down my path. And so I stopped this car and waved my hands and said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's um, just a couple hundred yards down. You can't see it around the bend and you're going way too fast. But if you go around the bend, there's this massive canyon and there's no bridge. There's no way there. And if you drive over, you're going to die. And what if the driver says, man, you are totally wrong. I've got my GPS and it's Google Maps or Apple Maps. And they're always right because Apple's always right. And so... Sorry, it's a little aside because I have problems with my Apple Maps. But anyway, so imagine this guy says, no, no, you're wrong because it's right here on my map that tells me what, what I need to know. And you said, well, no, wait a minute, man. Yeah, I'm sorry, they just haven't updated it yet. You know, that little car isn't driven down here with a camera on there and you're wrong. You're going to die if you continue to drive that way. And so we get in a heated argument back and forth, back and forth with this driver. And, and eventually the driver gets out of the car and he shoves me out of the way and says, stop blocking my way. And I, I do whatever I can to block this car and to keep this car from going down that path. But eventually the car, the guy gets back in the car and he tries to run me over. I jump out of the way. It would be right in one sense, morally, of me to do whatever I could to put myself in harm's way to, to stop them. At the same time, they would justly deserve death because they had been warned and every attempt was made to stop them. You know, I, I love how C.S. Lewis talks about the responsibility for being given over to wrath. He puts it very effectively in, in his book, The Great Divorce. And he says, there's only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. All that are in hell, choose it. In these verses, I want you to notice something. There's a logical progression that the Apostle Paul is trying to show us. And he uses this repetition of patterns, of the pattern of rebellion, and this pattern of increasingly God giving them over, this pattern of man rebels, and so God gives them over. Man rebels, God gives them over. And so we see this, this kind of threefold pattern. And I, I might have this slide for you, I think. Yeah, Excellent. The first pattern we see is in verses 21 to 24 of people exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images. People turning to idol worship. And so, because of that, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. 
That is the worst thing for you, is for God to let you do what you want. You know, the gospel preaches the good news which sets us free from being constrained to obey our own sinful lusts. And so the wrath and punishment of God that we need to be delivered for is we need to be delivered from God turning us over to the sinful desires of our heart. And then the second progression we see, the Apostle Paul talks about in verse 25 and 26, it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And he says, so God gave them over. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then the third progression we see is this exchanging of natural relations for those contrary to nature. Women exchanging natural relations for those with women contrary to the nature of women and men. The men exchanging natural relations with women. And so, what's the result here? It says, God gave them up to a debased or a depraved mind. When you have the thought of, boy, I just really want to do what I want, that's the worst thing you could think. Because God gives, you up to a de- gives people up to a debased mind if they reject him and they follow after their own desires. God's response to man is man's refusal to honor him, exchanging this glory of a mortal God for idols. It, it's giving man over to sinful desires. When Paul writes that God gave him over, it's that same phraseology, by the way, in the Old Testament. I mean, you ever read in the Old Testament where it says, you know, God gave over the people of Israel to the Babylonians. They were given over into captivity. They were given over into slavery. They were given over as in, uh, to their enemies as judgment on their sins. And it's always in that context of given over as judgment. And it's a frightening prospect because it applies more than just the natural consequences of a person's choice. It indicates that God is actually giving them over into captivity to their sin. So why do we need the gospel? Because people are in captivity, futile, blind, darkened. Why is the gospel necessary? How does the gospel reveal God's wrath? Because God's given them over to captivity to their sins. This is not just mere passive judgment. This is God consigning them over to bondage to their own desires. So when you hear somebody say, well, that's, what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me, you, you can know that, that that person's actually in bondage, suppressing the truth. And they need the revelation of God's good news to redeem them. To redeem their futile thinking. To give them a new heart and new mind. When you're tempted to excuse away your sin, that should cause us to cry out, Father, Lord, keep me from my own desires. Well, the deserved judgment that Paul's talking about results in dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this is progression of denying God, not acknowledging God, suppressing the truth, and worse being serving the Creator. It leads to God's judgment. And look down at your Bibles in verse 26. It says, for this reason God gave them up. And then in verses 26 to 30, it explains the results of man rejecting God. It's the results of man rejecting God. Worshiping humanity, it leads to to further dishonorable passions. God created men and women in honor. And, and the words here is natural relations. Those are, are words that are used really exclusively to refer to sexual relations. We don't need to go into details there. But natural, the created order of nature. When God created man and woman to be with each other, 
physically in marriage. He established that from the beginning. That's what Paul's referring to when he refers to natural relations. There's no other way of reading this. It's evident from our design alone that, that man is created for woman and woman for man, and there's an honor in that created order. You know, naturally, if you've got a couple rabbits and you have a male and a female, they're going to eventually relate to each other as part of their natural relationships. But in judgment, God gives people up to desires that have been twisted or distorted. And so it becomes, to them, second nature, really. Because God's given them over to those desires. It's a result of people rejecting God. The same way God gives women over desires, contrary to how He naturally created them. He's talking about, um, in, in verse 27 there, how men... Gave up natural relations for women. What he's talking about is just one of the early signs. This is not the only sign. And, and in the next verses, we're going to see that this is not the only sign. This is not the only judgment. This is not the only sign of God's wrath. This is just one of the signs that for Jews would have been very offensive. And for Jews, it would have been very offensive the idea of women committing these acts. And so Paul is, is saying, well, here's some, here's some examples. Here's an example of the wrath of God. He says, and as a result, they receive the due penalty for pursuing the wrong desire in themselves, in their bodies, whatever that looks like. These verses couldn't be clearer. These two verses, it's an unrepentant behavior, a lifestyle of homosexual sin. It's it's a sign that somebody has already rejected God as their God. It means they're not part of God's kingdom. It doesn't mean that it's unforgivable, nor does it mean that it's irredeemable, that they cannot repent. It's just yet another sign of the wrath of God. Paul's not saying it's the worst or beyond help or hope. He's using an example as one to begin with of many examples. And it's not to say everybody who struggles, by the way, if you're here today and you're, you're listening, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you place your faith in Him and you are seeking to honor Him with your bodies and not give yourself over to sinful desires, it doesn't mean the fact that you, because we are corrupted, because our thoughts have remaining sin because you have a temptation does not mean that you are apart from God. Just like any other sin, it's, it's giving in to those temptations. It's giving in to idolatry. It's, it's saying yes to sin and no to God. It's not honoring and worshiping God. That's, that's when it's sin. And it's a, it's a pursuing of that lifestyle. Like any sin we're tempted by, the temptation doesn't mean we're not worshiping God. Permanently, it means in that moment... We're choosing to worship our desires instead of Him. Temptation doesn't equal sin. Refusing to worship God by giving in to temptation, that's when we sin. But by the way, don't stop at these verses. This is just one of many. We've got to be careful here. All of the things that Paul lists here are idolatry, and he lists them equally. He doesn't give a grade to one over the other. He doesn't say one's more heinous than another. He just starts off with an example would have been very offensive to Jews in that culture for women. So what should be our response to anybody caught in any idolatry? We should love them as our neighbor. We should should love them enough to share the good news with them, to pray for them, to care for them, to to explain the the gospel of God that, that redeems us from our desires, that delivers us, that helps us, that transforms us. 
And then we see in verse 28 the continuing consequences of not acknowledging God. Here's what the continuing consequences are. It says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Part of God's wrath on sinful humanity is that people become depraved in their minds to do what ought not to be done. And he goes on to explain that in verses 29. It's all kinds of different sins. Look down your Bibles. He explains, and by the way, so you can see, this is just one of many sins he mentions in verse 26 and 27. Now in 28, debased mind, the signs of that. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And he goes on to explain what that unrighteousness or wickedness looks like. He says they were filled with evil, covetousness, wanting something that somebody else has, malice, not just being hateful towards somebody, full of envy, wanting the things that people have, murder, strife. Deceit, maliciousness. All kinds of unrighteousness come from God's judgment on mankind. And judgment being given over to sin, it results in every manner of unrighteous living. So when people suppress the truth of God, when they don't honor God, God gives them up to the very idolatry that they desire. So all manner of sin is birthed. And I hope for you the effect, as we just read that list so far, we're going to read even more lists of idolatrous sins that God gives people over if they refuse to worship him, if they suppress the truth. I hope part of the effect is, even if you're a believer, you're saying, oh my goodness, I once deserved God's wrath because I'm guilty of all these things. And you know what? By my own nature, I still sometimes do those things. I hope it creates in you a humility. And that was the effect that Paul was going here with the Jews. He was, he was trying to help them see that you're without excuse because all these sins. You think this one is really heinous? Let me list all these other ones and show you that you too are without excuse. You can't be self-righteous. He goes on to describe wickedness in detail. Look down your Bible at the end of verse 29, 30, and 31 there. He says they're gossips, slanderers, ouch, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, kids, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. He lists all these previous sins that seem to be huge. And then he intentionally lists other ones that that people have relegated to minor sins. And he says, all of these are signs of the wrath of God being revealed. All of these are deserving of God's wrath as well. He lists being a gossip and a slanderer alongside the sins that we think of as more heinous. All these are a result of a foolish, darkened heart and debased mind. And I want you to just stop on some of those more minor ones for a minute. You guilty of any of those? All of them deny God's truth. All of them don't acknowledge God. All of them are a failure to worship God. All of these sins reject the truth and suppress the truth. All of these sins are futile and they lead to a darkened understanding apart from God. And that's how seriously God takes all these things. They are evidences of God's wrath being given over to those things, being given over to gossip and slander and being proud, disobedient to parents, not being a man of a woman to your word. You know, who here can say they've never been insolent or proud, they've never insulted somebody else or done something to them as a result of being angry? Who here can say they've never been proud or haughty or arrogant or thought of yourself as better than somebody else? Anybody here? Can you? Who here has never been proud and looked down on somebody else? Who here has never boasted themselves in some way? Who here has never come up with something evil on their own? Who here, this one's a a big one, who here has not disobeyed their parents? 
I definitely cannot claim that. Who here has never been foolish? Who here has never gone back on their word and been faithless or untrustworthy? Anybody? Who here has never been unloving, unmerciful, which is what ruthless is, or mean or unkind? You know, as I was reading through these verses, I was thinking, you know, to my shame, I've been guilty of, of at least envy and murderous thoughts. I've not killed anybody, just so you know. Um, but there's forgiveness if I had. It's just I'd probably be in jail. But, you know, I've been guilty of envy, of murderous thoughts, of strife, of deceit, and maliciousness, and gossip, and slander. I've been insolent. I've been haughty. I've been boastful. I've come up with evil things to do. I've been disobedient. My parents have been foolish. I've been faithless. I've been loving and merciful. Maybe there's a slight chance that one of you, somebody here, can say, you know what, I've not done all of those things, but there's not anybody here who says I've not done one of those things. Everybody's here is, is without excuse apart from God, and no one here has a righteousness of their own. No one here can avoid God's deserved wrath on their own. So that's why it's good news that the gospel reveals the wrath of God. He says, so the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against man. Why? Why is that good for us to hear, good for us to know? I think because it, it, it one, will turn us to our need for God, turn us to hate any righteousness that we try to have on our own, turn us to humility, to pursuing God, to relying on God to, to share the gospel as well. The result of continuing to live that way, look in verse 32 as you get ready to wrap up. He says, though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You know, unless men and women are saved by the power of God, by the gospel, by the grace of God, through faith in his righteousness alone, they will knowingly rebel against God, even though they inherently know it's wrong, and that those things deserve death. And he says, not only that, They'll give hearty approval to those who practice such things. And isn't that what we see in the world around us today? Hearty approval to sins and distortions. All those sins I listed, you can find some group that protests rights to do those things. But before you get self-righteous and think, I don't do that, I don't, I don't give approval. I don't give it. I'm not like that. I'm not tempted to give approval. I can't relate. I've never given approval to to those sins. Well, have you ever given approval to gossip implicitly by listening to it and not saying anything about it? You're giving approval. You ever heard slander against a public figure or somebody you know? And you heard it, you listened to it, you didn't say anything about it, you didn't correct it? You're giving approval. How about those of us who are parents? You know, I was thinking through, you know, I'm trying to think through. I'm encouraging my kids to have good grades, to work hard, to, to strive to do their best. And there's this fine line, though, between encouraging idolatry and encouraging hard work. You ever encouraged idolatry of grades or sports scores as the, the most important thing, more important than character? You ever... Approved of envy in regards to a house or a car or a better job or recognition or something else? You ever, or maybe you've approved of envy because um, someone's overweight and they're envious of being skinny and you approve of that 
envy. It's not wrong to want to be thin when you're overweight, but it is wrong to be envious. Ever approved of envy? Maybe some other way? None of us are immune. All of us are equally guilty in need of the gospel apart from God's gracious gift of righteousness by faith. We would all deserve the wrath of God. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. Why? Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. So I'm not ashamed. Why am I not ashamed to preach the gospel? Because the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. So, therefore, I want to preach the good news. So we shouldn't be ashamed to preach the gospel because in the gospel alone we find hope for humanity. This should also keep each and every one of us. This is how this chapter was meant to function. This portion of this chapter was meant to function. Uh, when he was writing to the Jews and the Gentiles, and Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles because at least they've kept the law. And he says, no, well, here's all the Gentiles. And by the way, and he's going to get that in chapter 2, if you think you're really good, the Gentiles don't even have the law. You've got the law, and you do all these things. You're without excuse. So what's the other response? It's to create Humility. For us to humble ourselves before God. It's meant to create gratitude for us. That we're meant to say, God, we want to acknowledge you. And all that we do, Lord, is from your hand. We want to live grateful lives. Grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been revealed to us. Not because we're smart, but by God's gracious gift. We want to be grateful and say, you know what, I have no righteousness of my own. And so any confidence in myself I want to put aside. We also want to respond to these verses and say, you know what, I don't want to give myself over again to sin. And Paul's going to get to that later in, in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 of Romans of, of how if we died to sin, how can we give ourselves over to it any longer? If you've been set free from the bondage of having to give, be given over to your own desires, then don't follow this natural progression because you don't have to. Because God's giving you a renewed heart and mind. And so these are also for us to recognize the patterns that lead us to be hardened in our hearts towards God. The deceitfulness of sin can still creep in. These, this passage is to keep us from the deceitfulness of sin, to keep us from giving ourselves over to thinking that will eventually lead to futility. Now you see why Paul is so big on preaching the gospel. Through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. We need a righteousness apart from ourselves, don't we? But thanks be to God, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we have a righteousness apart from us that has nothing to do with us. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to us. All of the right actions of Christ are credited towards us. Why? Because the gospel also reveals that we all deserve to sin. We all, we all deserve his wrath for our sin. And in the cross, the gospel reveals the wrath of God very distinctly. Jesus hung on the cross because of God's wrath against our sin. And so the gospel reveals the wrath of God for sin on the cross. And there was a reason why everything became dark in the final hour after, after Jesus lovingly cares for his mom and says, Woman, here's your son about John, and then it says the sky became dark and, and, and this deep darkness came, and then Jesus cries out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the wrath of God being poured out on Christ. It's revealed in the gospel. But what we need to see is that we deserve that wrath. But in exchange, we receive the righteousness of God that comes only by faith. 
Humanity needs the good news. You and I need the good news. We need it every day. We need to preach this message to ourselves every day to keep us from self-righteousness, to keep us hoping in him, to keep us glorying in him, to keep us humble, to, to keep us focused in proclaiming the gospel. We need this message every day. It's the only message that's truly powerful enough to deliver us from sin. It's the only message powerful enough to blow away the dark motives and dark thinking and, and reveal God's truth. It's if you're here and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what's the answer? The answer is simple. It's turn to the good news about Jesus and trust in Christ alone, by faith alone. You see, the truth of God's word always demands response. And the response, it demands response from everybody here as a believer and an unbeliever both. How have I been living? How have I been thinking? Have I, am I pursuing any idols? Am I submitting myself again to things that lead to darkness. If so, thanks be to God, I don't have to. Thanks there's no condemnation. Because there's no condemnation, I'm set free. And now I can in hope say, God, I want to by faith live righteously. Turn and receive God's righteousness from faith. Have confidence in his righteousness. And it gives us humility and freedom. Helps us recognize and avoid idolatry, recognize the world around us, and helps us share the power of the gospel. Amen? Well, let's pray. If I have the band, go ahead and come up, and we'll close with a final song of worship. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that in Christ alone our hope is found. Thank you that we have no other hope. Thank you that you don't give us over. If we've placed our faith, our trust, our hope in you, that you no longer give us over, but you've delivered us from our sinful desires. You've set us free so we don't have to be enslaved and in bondage to them any longer. So Lord, I pray for everyone here who is stuck in sin, that they would repent and that they would turn to you and receive freedom. God, I pray for everybody here as well that we would Rejoice in your good news. Rejoice that your wrath has been poured out on Christ instead of us. Rejoice that we've been given a righteousness by faith. And Lord, let us boldly declare your goodness that we see all around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.